Hi, I'm Gail from Europod. Before enjoying your podcast, allow me to say a few words about Europe Talks Back. In the third season of Europe Talks Back, I want to uncover the topics that matter or should matter to all of us. From gender to bodies and sex, digital to migration and urban landscapes, and everything in between. Rather than focusing on macro-level policies, let's zoom in and talk to the brave activists and volunteers with lived experience, who are working directly with marginalized communities to further equity, justice, and liberation for all. Europod. Hi, this is Maria, editor at Bulle Media and Europod. Just a short warning before you continue listening to this episode. This podcast contains explicit content and reference to a scenes of violence, which you might find disturbing. First and foremost, what happened is incomprehensible. It is incomprehensible, and I still can't live with it. I can't live with it. When we were in Birkenau on our second day, there were kapos, and there was no one we could ask what was happening. And then we asked one of the kapos to whom we belonged. We asked him where the others were, those we came with. You know, we were told when we arrived that by evening all the families would be reunited again. But two days had passed and no one had come. So we asked, where are they? And then he sneered at us and pointed to the smoke and said, there they are. Well, imagine. Imagine you're just 18 years old. Just imagine. I can't imagine it. I really don't think that we can imagine this. Even in our nightmares. But if a Fahidi lived and survived the Auschwitz-Birkenau concentration camp, in that terrible situation, she experienced there was something that kept her alive. Something that gave her strength. You might wonder what. Well, Eva believes that one of the most important things in life is freedom. Not just any freedom, but freedom of thought. I decide what I buy in the shop, what I do during the day, and what I do at night, who I live with, where I travel to, who I vote for what I believe in, and what to think. But do we really decide everything freely? Humans have a strange relationship with freedom. Often we say that freedom is our most important fundamental value. Yet other times we tolerate being told what to do from above. So why is this dichotomy? Is there an objective level of freedom? And what would we do for it? Hi, my name is Alexander Damianorici, and this is Freedom in Hungary. In this podcast series, we tell the stories of six people from Hungary whose lives have been shaped by the concept of freedom. 
Eva Fahid is 97 years old, and she's a Holocaust survivor. Eva has lived most of her life in Hungary, under regimes that infringed on the freedom and lives of their own citizens. In her life, Eva has experienced many times what it is like to have one's freedom restricted or even completely taken away. But she also knows what it means to feel absolutely free. I grew up terribly free in all aspects. First of all, I was born in Debrecen, in the middle of the great Hungarian plain. You can get used to not seeing a mountain for a long time when you're a child. You get used to the fact that wherever you look, the sky meets the earth. So if you're used to that, you feel closed off from everything else. In Debrecen, the half-meter-high hills of Samson are the highest thing that sticks out of the ground. This is something that spurs freedom, and it's something absolutely wonderful to go out of the city, to be in the fields, and everywhere you look, everywhere you look, there are kites and storks circling in the air. And you see, you see everything. I think it is a fundamental right for everyone not to feel restricted, not to be restricted, especially not being restricted in terms of what you think. Otherwise, when it comes to that level, well... What they can take from you is, they can take everything from you, everything. They can take your family, all your possessions, and they can do it multiple times. You know, it's not interesting. I mean, property is not interesting. That can always be reproduced. You can always have more land, more houses, more clothes, more horses, more cars. You can basically have everything. But there is only one thing you can never have more than once. That is life. If you had someone, someone you loved very much, or on the contrary, if you just had someone you did not like, you didn't love them particularly, just because it is sometimes so natural to have them beside you, it was so natural in a big Jewish family of the countryside to have so many cousins, so many uncles and aunts. They are naturally there. You bond with them. You bond with them mostly because they love you very much. And it is their duty to make that love known to you. It was everybody's job in my childhood to tell me and make me aware that they loved me very much. And that is something, that is a feeling that is difficult to put into words. Eva Fahidi was born in Debrecen in 1925, into a middle-class Jewish family. Her father ran a successful business. According to Eva, he believed and the betterment of their fate until the very last moment, despite the fact that Hungary became increasingly committed to Nazi Germany between the two world wars, and despite the fact that anti-Semitism was already a part 
of their everyday life. Initially, Eva's father tried to protect the family by converting them to Catholicism. But after 1938, when laws were passed, restricting the lives of Jews and excluding them from commerce, among other things, her father continued to manage his business through intermediary persons. Eva experienced all this as a child in a loving family, but it was clear that something was wrong. In retrospect, she neither agrees with the hope of grace through baptism, nor with what she defined as guilty optimism. I was 10 years old when I went to high school in the first year. History was taught by the headmaster of the institution, whose name was Marton Melau. It was him who taught us history. There was no history book, only notes he dictated. So, a very memorable moment in my life was when I was 10 years old and Marton Melau started the first history class and said that Hungary was a country of lords and high priests. And then I thought to myself, where am I? What country do I live in? What am I in this country? <laughs> At the age of 10, you already have that much understanding. So it seems two different lives coexisted in the life of Eva. She experienced total freedom on the one hand. But on the other one, when she got to school and listened to the teacher, she was confronted with the fact that, on a larger scale, it wasn't quite so. There were a lot of problems like that at the time. I was 11 years old in 1936. I was born in 1925. And my father converted in 1936. My father didn't think that it would change a thing. Yet nothing positive came out of that. What came out of it was that I was very sorry. Wait, actually, I was very ashamed in front of all the kids at school that my father converted, because you can't escape a sinking ship. I told him I was ashamed at the time, and it made him very, very sad, because he really just wanted to save us. Because it had turned out that there was Auschwitz and that there was Birkenau and there was a furnace and gas chambers and we just didn't want to acknowledge it. All those, I would say, stupid Jews went like sheep to the slaughterhouse. We went into the crematorium. In the interviews, Eva concedes, and as well in her writing, she argues a lot against optimism. But why is that? Is it maybe because excessive optimism was the practical undoing of much of the Jewry in Hungary in that epoch? That has become my life experience. You see, my father, who I thought was very clever, yeah, I thought my father was so clever. In my eyes, my father was like God. I thought he could do anything he wanted. I struggled with my father for 70 years, even when he was long gone. It took me 70 years to come to terms with him, and in the end I can't help but reach the same conclusion, namely that I felt betrayed by him. 
He betrayed me by converting. He had sold out his own honor, and it was no use to anyone. I tell you, it took me 70 years, 70 years, to feel that I could forgive him. Hungary entered the Second World War as an ally of Nazi Germany in 1941. However, three years later, German military forces invaded the country, just after Adolf Hitler became aware of the Hungarian government soft pedaling towards the Allies. After the German invasion on the 29th of April 1944, Eva and her family had to move to the ghetto in Debrecen. Approximately after a month and a half in the ghetto, from there they were sent to a brick factory. And from that spot, shortly after, towards the end of June, they were all deported to Auschwitz-Birkenau. In the Nazi concentration camp, Eva lost her entire family, including her 11-year-old sister. As a matter of fact, by mid-July 1944, Hungarian gendarmerie officials, under the guidance of German Nazi officials, deported around 440,000 Jews from Hungary. Most were deported to Auschwitz-Birkenau, where, upon arrival and after selection, Nazi functionaries killed the majority of them in gas chambers. On the 29th of April 1944, we had to leave our home and we had to go into the ghetto. By the 1st of May, all Jews had to be in the ghetto in Debrecen. And they were. The four of us stood outside our house with a yellow star on us. The very familiar street where I used to dance in the evening became hostile. Because when guests came, we always used to accompany them for a while outside. And then, as we were going back home, I had that street, and I really loved to dance. And I would dance all the way down the street. So, all of a sudden, I was standing there with the yellow star, and that dear street turned hostile. And I realized that the situation was hopeless. We would go into the ghetto. And then what? In that moment, not only did I feel the world was over, but also my childhood. I used to say that I never grew up. I never had time to grow up. There was a disconnect between being my mother's daughter and being my father's daughter, and... and then what? It's just over. It's cut off. The only good thing about the camp was that you could believe that the war would end, that nothing could last forever, that this war would end, and then we would go home. That we would have the we're going home moment, and that everything would continue with my mother and father, and that everything would be there. It's such a completely dual thing. When in the camp, one part of me thought, I don't have them. How stupid if I think about that now. I don't have them. I don't have my father and my mother. I don't have them. 
I'm sure of it. Because I can't have them. Because if I had them, they would be here with me. But they are not here with me, so where are they? I knew it very well with half my brain. The emotional part, yes. But one has a brain, if one has one. But one has emotions anyway. And the emotion is always alive. And even if you know very well with your brain that there are impossible things, with your emotions you don't know that. You don't know that, you just can't. You cannot take it when the capo tells you that there is your sister in the smoke coming out of the chimney. That there is your sister. It's hard for people today to imagine what that feels like or how to survive the horrors of daily life. Even today, Eva says that two things got her through the most difficult moments in Auschwitz. First, and then through the forced labor camp at Allendorf. In the first place, she often remembered her childhood, her family, and the sense of freedom and love she felt at that time. On the other hand, she remembers the interdependence, the solidarity, the way she and her fellow prisoners united and supported each other. You can survive with the knowledge that someone is there, someone who needs you very much. So you can only survive by having another person beside you. And all the death camps, or all camps, are structured in such a way that there are small units in the German camps, it was that particular row of five. Because they were always counting us, because they were always expecting us to try and escape, even though there was no realistic possibility of that. But they were always counting us. And we had to line up in rows of five, because it was supposed to be easier to count, like five, ten, fifteen, etc. And these particular rows of five they became family replacements. At least ours was such. I was together with three little girls that I knew from home and who were standing there at the moment the selection happened, just like it happened to me. She had no family. She didn't, I didn't. But they were there and I knew them. We went to the same school and they were standing there on their own, just like me. And then we were there for each other. I know that I was terribly important to her because she would ask me, do you remember? Or I could say to her, there was a girl amongst us. She had a wonderfully beautiful mother. And I would just say to her, Aniko, it just came to my mind, what a beautiful mother you have. I would tell her, you have a mother. When I already knew that at most her mother was just a very beautiful ash in the Birkenau swamp. But I still told her that she had a mother and that made her absolutely happy. Viktor Frankl a notorious Austrian psychiatrist and Holocaust survivor himself, argued in his work that even in the direst of situation, like a concentration camp, you can still have a tiny bit of freedom that no one can take away from you, unless your life is taken. What does Eva think about that? 
Igen, ez az. Yes, that's it. And in that life you can still trust. Even when it's so fucking hard you can't stand it. And then you still want to live. I don't know why it is this way. It's like a double dose of the will to live or... I mean, what's the point of a horrible life with nothing but suffering and no prospect of anything but suffering? Why would you want to live? But then you want to live very much. You want very much to live. When the physical suffering is so overwhelming, can a person create an inner world for her or himself? Some place you can escape into. Yes, yes. My childhood was structured in a very comfortable way. I could always hold on to the family. As I said to you, In that big, loving family, I could always hold on to it and think that it would be good to continue. If it could come back, if it would have been preserved or could have been reproduced in some way, it was worth living for. And I've received so much love, very, very conscious and very expressive love, that it still lasts to this day. It lasted my whole life. Egész életemben azt tartott ki. If I return to Hungary in November 1945, after the victory of the Allied forces, however, history would bring yet another regime to Hungary. In fact, the presence of Soviet troops severely restricted people's freedom. While newspaper articles, placards and slogans proclaimed the power and freedom of the working people, It was becoming increasingly difficult to say or write anything. And those who did were sooner or later confronted by the Communist Hungarian Workers' Party in regime. This is exactly what happened to Eva's first husband, who was a journalist. One day, he was taken away by a black car and convicted by a jury at the end of a trial. Eva, who returned alive from the camps, became a militant Marxist herself, So, if it is true that Eva had survived Auschwitz and that she had been able to start a new life in Hungary under communism, she also came to understand rather soon that not all that glitters is gold, so to speak. How could Eva be fooled a second time? Why did she believe in communism? Because I'm incredibly stupid and naive and always always need to have some ideals, something I believe in. I always want to do something for others. And I totally fell for Marxism. Totally. So I would say about my father that he was an exploiter. And I believed it, and I felt it. Did Eva feel free when she was putting her trust into communism? I didn't feel that I was not free. I didn't feel free, but now it's easy to look back and I'm so old. Now I know that if you are really, really passionate about something and you feel like it is your life, and it actually, truly is your life, if you get to that point, well, you can be manipulated, absolutely manipulated, And you are always going to find some kind of explanation for doing things that you wouldn't have done by your basic nature. So, 
How do we protect ourselves from those manipulative forces? You cannot defend yourself. In my experience, you really can't defend yourself. If you're very lucky, you don't get to the point of giving yourself up in worship. And if you are lucky, you have enough basic humanity inside you to remain human. Nothing can bring people together and divide them like their political beliefs, or indeed, their political ideals. That's why people everywhere are killing each other. Eva worked in the construction business in the 1950s as a machine operator, then as a secretary. And finally, thanks to her language skills, she worked in foreign trade, right in the political and economical system that consolidated after the 1956 revolution. In fact, between the end of October and the beginning of November 1956, the citizens of Hungary took the streets of the country in what would have been called the Hungarian Uprising. It was a 20-day-long countrywide revolution against the communist government of the Hungarian People's Republic and the domestic policies imposed by the Soviet Union. However, this revolution was eventually crushed by Soviet tanks and troops on November 4, 1956. Thousands were killed and wounded and nearly a quarter million Hungarians fled the country. Coming back to Eva and her career after those events, she says she could have chosen not to live in Hungary, but she was bound to the country. Even though she speaks languages, her roots are in Hungary. Eva never wanted to live anywhere else, and as a foreign trader, she was free to travel around the world without the need to leave her home country for good. In the end, it's because of freedom. Because when I was a kid, we used to travel all the time, and I had a very strong desire to come and go, to see and come back, to always go somewhere and wonder, and then come home and be happy that we came home. So yeah, I remember. I became a foreign trader because it was the only way I could have some passports. I ended up having four passports. When I was already an old foreign trader, there was a different passport for socialist countries, for non-socialist countries. And I had one for traveling to Israel, one for Arab countries, and yes, one for socialist and non-socialist countries, which was mine personally in the name of Efa Fahidi. It was like that. It was great in the end. You just had to get there. So I did not have to give up anything. I spoke languages, which became my excuse, because language skills, thank God, are always needed. So I ended up in foreign trading. As Eva lived through a lot in her life, we asked her what advice she feels like giving to a person or maybe a whole generation when it comes to understanding if breaches of freedom are acceptable. So how can one say if a given breach of freedom has been acceptable until now, but it's not anymore, maybe? In other terms, when should people actively take action for their freedom? When is that moment? How can you tell? I don't have a recipe for that. 
I'm not telling anyone to go away. I'm telling everyone to make their life so that they can stay here. After all, being Hungarian means something. It still means something to me, despite everything. Yes, I don't know what makes a happy person and how much happiness everyone needs. I think it's different from person to person. I think it is also personal how much each person wants to cut him or herself off the communities they live in when they feel restrained. I don't know. I can't give you a recipe for what you're asking, for identifying a limit, if there is one. When you feel the system is unbearable, it's worth asking why has it become unbearable for you? Why? When someone feels that he or she has to leave this country, even if it would be nice to stay here in Hungary, in Budapest, and look at the Statue of Freedom, the Statue of Gellert every day, But then, if you think of him, of Gellert, that poor man, he meant well, but they pushed him off that mountain too. So we asked Eva if eventually it is worth staying in Hungary or then elsewhere today. Yes, but if things happen which imply that to stand them you have to compromise yourself, things that if you rebel against them then you get your head bitten off, then it is not advisable. That's different. That's another matter. But I don't want to incite anyone. And not just because I like having my head on my neck. I know it's very important. I have experienced this situation. Eva lived through the darkest years of the 20th century, witnessed two totalitarian regimes attacking the freedom and lives of their own citizens. If I experience what it is like to live restricted in one's own freedom. But how free does she feel today, at her age? I still feel free enough, meaning that I feel like I can tolerate what's happening around me. I'm not necessarily enthusiastic about everything, but it's within the limits of what is tolerable for me. I don't want to be a hero, and I don't want to be a Cassandra. I'm trying to keep my tentacles in as much as I can and just shout as much as I absolutely have to. So what does Eva think people today, like me or our contemporaries or even younger people, have to do with freedom in the first place? Do we have anything to do with it at all? I think you have an awful lot to do with it. First, you need to know what makes you free. Can you put it into words? Can you put it, like I said, that the sky meets the earth? I mean, not only in facts, but also figuratively. Do you feel that this system is terrible because it doesn't allow you to be successful? Because you can't write in an article what you find terrible? Because then you don't know if something terrible won't happen to you. You have to be able to articulate what freedom means to you. I always wanted to grow old at home. For my part, I've completely succeeded. 
but I also really want my grandchildren, and I have a great-grandchild too now. I want that when he grows up, he'll feel free wherever he will be in the world. If I just turned 97, she knows the feeling of complete freedom, yet she also knows what it is like not to be free at all. And what can help you survive when there seems to be no hope anymore? From the chat we had with her, it seems that, as trivial as it may sound, it is all about love and humanity. The memories of family love, of fellow human beings standing up for each other, of solidarity, of empathy, of humanity in all circumstances. Eva spoke out against blindness and also gave the younger generation a serious challenge to define what freedom means to them. This is exactly what we're trying to explore in this podcast series. This was the first episode of Freedom in Hungary, a podcast series in which we ask people from Hungary to share their thoughts and visions about freedom, sharing their personal stories. This Europod podcast was produced in partnership with the Hungarian Budapest-based podcast production agency, Bitone Studio. Freedom in Hungary is a podcast part of the Sfera Network, the first network of independent media in Europe, which aims at reinventing the media space and paint a new picture of Europe through impactful, unbiased, raw, and authentic stories. This podcast show is also available in its original language, in Hungarian. The editor-in-chief of Freedom in Hungary is Anita Nietzer. The editors are Susanna Fasekas and Luca Lukacs. The original host and narrator is Andras Batis. The selection of soundtracks and original post-production is by Adam Gungiosi. The creative producer is Balaz Roman. The producer is Richard Hamburg. Sound editing and mixing of the English version is by Jeremy Bouquet and Thomas Kosberg from Bull Media Podcast Agency. The English voice of Eva Fahidi is by Joe Ash. My name is Alexander Damianovic. Do you want to hear more podcasts that get to the bottom of things that stand out in the ambient noise? Join Europod. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and our newsletter. Follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram. Discover our brand new website at www.europod.eu and join us in our fight. Europod. Clear the noise. Start to listen.